0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Gary Brotman. Gary is the Senior Director of Product Management at Qualcomm. Gary, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I am excited uh, for this new year. And as I mentioned to you as we were chatting before we started rolling, today is my birthday, uh, making this a – well, it's always very cool to kind of have the new year and my birthday align. Um, But uh, I'm excited to make this my first
1: interview of the year. And I'm happy to share your birthday with you, Sam.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Why don't we get started by – uh, having you tell us a little bit about your background, you got uh, into artificial intelligence initially by way of music. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I guess my my interest in AI um, started way back, I guess it would have been at the turn of the century. Um, I was working at a, a company called Music Match, which had developed a jukebox software application for the PC. But part of that uh, offering was a personal uh, music recommendation engine that was a proprietary engine that, uh, music match had created and it was using, um, collaborative filtering algorithms to monitor the listening behavior of the users of our jukebox software and what they, what they were listening to, what they skipped, what they listened to fully. And we were able to really develop some really rich correlations between, uh, artists and listeners that had, that transcended any traditional, uh, tagging data like genre or year or era, what have you, um, uh, just looking, listening to, or actually watching what people are observing what listeners were actually doing, not what they were saying, not what they said they liked or disliked, but what they were actually listening to. And then taking the correlations between individual listeners and then myself or another, somebody else. And that combined, uh, the combined influences came up uh, or resulted in some very unique recommendations. My my background early on was in music and digital music and MP3 compression. And when I came across or when we when I experienced uh what Music Match had to offer and help promote their recommendation technology, which also powered personalized radio and um, on-demand streaming recommendations, that got me hooked. Uh and I carried that with me for a number of years. And Uh, Up until four years ago, when I had an opportunity at Qualcomm to bring some uh, AI machine learning technology at a corporate R&D into the commercial side of the house and release it across our Snapdragon platform, Um, kind of tying those things together over the past four years has really been a, uh, a great experience and quite rewarding.
0: Why don't we maybe spend a little bit of time talking about Qualcomm for those who are not familiar with the company and, and what you're up to? I know in our newsletter, uh, we've talked about Qualcomm quite a bit, particularly over the last year, everything from the, the Snapdragon, uh, platform launch in December prior to that, uh, the extended reality, uh, release that you did in June. Um, some new chips in April. And uh, I think maybe in January or something, there was uh, a neural processing engine and a hexagon vector processor, all really interesting stuff that I'm excited uh, to talk to you about today. Uh, But for folks who've kind of seen those pieces and and don't really know what the, the big picture, what's Qualcomm up to in this space?
1: Well, I mean, if you go back in time, um, you know, we've been a uh, kind of a mobile innovator for over 30 years now, most of it starting with cellular. Um, and since I guess the the early 90s, we've been focused on the connectivity side with every G transition, we call it from 3G to 4G and now to 5G. But we also got into the chip business in, in, the, 90, in, the, in the 90s because it was others were having some difficulty developing 2G and 3G chips. And then that was a springboard for us to then move the internet from the PC onto a mobile phone. We saw this trend happening very early on and try to hasten that with uh, investment in both connectivity and uh, silicon. Um, and then we introduced the Snapdragon mobile platform uh, a little over a decade ago. In fact, we're probably coming up on 11 years now and that, and Snapdragon is now what powers the majority of Android phones in the marketplace globally. Um, what we've done on the Snapdragon side specifically, when it comes to compute on a handset or in any other embedded device, IOT, automotive, uh, et cetera, um, we have we have leveraged the compute capabilities that we developed over that past decade um, to drive what we have seen over the past four years as being a very quick movement of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning based uh, workloads that have been mostly relegated to the cloud uh, on the server side or the data center, um, but are matriculating to the edge. Um, a mobile phone is really a, kind of the primary focus for us, but we do look at other verticals like IoT and automotive, as I mentioned. But the the, the activity from Qualcomm standpoint uh, has been very strong on, on 5G, but also in AI over the past four years, and specifically on-device AI and ensuring that um, uh, any device with a Snapdragon processor is able to um, efficiently... Uh, run and accelerate AI algorithms in a power efficient way.
0: Okay. So to make sure I understand that trajectory, the company started out basically building the, or not started out, but one of the, the company's big moves was really building the chips that allow devices to connect to uh, wireless networks like 3G, 4G, 5G. Uh, and then from that kind of presence in the mobile space moved into you know as smartphones uh, arrived moved into providing the compute platform or the, the the compute the compute chips for the smartphones and now are providing kind of the AI acceleration extensions to that compute platform is that that's the right per- way to think about it
1: yeah I think that's a that's the right continuum those are the those are the three big uh, pillars if you will
0: Okay, and your responsibility there is focused on AI strategy and product planning. How long has the company been thinking about AI?
1: Uh, That's a good question. We've been—it's interesting that most folks don't know how how long we've been focused on this, but it's been over a decade. We really started investing in uh, deep learning back in uh, or machine learning back in two thousand seven. We've had a heritage in computer vision. Um, but in the research side of the house, we've been looking at, you know, everything from spiky neural networks to deep learning going back as far as you know, 2007, 2008. Um, our research group has actually been driving most of the activity over that uh, 11, 12-year period, but um, um, in the past four years, uh, um, as I say, four of the last 11 years, we've actually been uh, releasing commercial-grade software as well as hardware acceleration to accommodate what we see as, at at this present, a tidal wave of workloads that are arriving on mobile. Um, We started our first, or at least we uh, introduced our first mobile SOC that was optimized for on-device machine learning with the Snapdragon 820 back in 2015, and we're now in our fourth generation. Um, Taking a little quick step back, I mean, my role at Qualcomm and our team's role is to Look at what we need to do to accommodate the this new class of software and algorithms on device um, and all as well as in the device. So we, at Qualcomm, we don't focus just on the end product. We're actually looking at AI and machine learning as being integral to how we develop products and also run our business. So um, my team's responsibility is to look across the, the Snapdragon portfolio where we can optimize up and down the tiers, whether it's in uh, a lower tier all the way up to the premium tier SOC. Um, but also look at ways that uh, as we develop our products within the organization, uh, how can we apply machine learning to make those processes more cost efficient, uh, reduce time, and in, and in cases where it's possible, uh, generate a creative revenue from that effort.
0: And you mentioned SOC in there. That's system on chip, which is basically the effectively the CPU for these devices. Is
1: yeah, right? it's actually it's a, the uh, the SOC would be a, a complete system. So the CPU may be the heart of the of the of the chip itself as a the primary uh, processor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the SOC uh, is defined as all the components that are necessary um, to drive what that device is capable of of doing. So in the case of Snapdragon, Snapdragon, the entire Snapdragon portfolio is an SOC portfolio, and each has at least uh, our cryo CPU, our Adreno GPU. Uh, and in uh, the high to mid to premium, the mid to high to premium tier, you'll find our um, you'll find hexagon. Um, we do have DSPs, or excuse I say the, the hexagon DSP. Uh, The DSP is pretty prevalent across the portfolio from a modem standpoint, but from an AI standpoint, um, the Hexagon family uh, includes uh, vector processors, which are present in our premium tier and uh, top tier uh, SOC, so 800 down to 600. Um, And that vector processor up until recently has been a primary uh, engine for running on-device AI.
0: What are the uh, primary use cases that you're focused on from a on-device AI perspective?
1: So the, the, there are a number that are, I guess, today and literally over the past 18 to 24 months that have become kind of table stakes have been things like um, – you know, just basic object recognition. So if you hold up your camera, you can detect whether something in the field of view is a specific class of object, let's say a car a cat or a dog or what have you. Um, and then taking that a little bit further to uh, facial recognition. So now if you look at uh, any phone today, Either you're going to have a, a phone that has a, a specific camera module that allows the device to take a kind of a 3D depth mapped image of your face so that you can unlock the phone, uh, but also maybe even make mobile payments depending on the type of phone you have and the region that you're in. Um, with AI, we're seeing that the that the, specifically in facial recognition, all the extra hardware that's been necessary to drive that really isn't necessary across the board because, um, you know, AI algorithms specifically are able to do depth mapping on their own with single images now and single camera. Um, so facial recognition for unlocking a phone and uh, making mobile payments is becoming fairly common. Um, voice activation, so being able to do um, detecting keyword on a mobile phone or any other device – Uh, I think that's becoming commonplace. And again, that's happening locally. It's not happening in the cloud. That recognition is immediate so that you can uh, have pretty low latency. Um, There are other camera effects like bouquets. You can segment your portrait, um, or they may call it portrait mode, what have you, uh, where you segment your body or the subject's body from the background so you can blur that out um, or create a separate background and and Put the individual in a completely separate environment visually. Um, the whole entire, I mean, the the entire camera pipeline. Most of the features that you see in you know, mobile camera today, whether it's HDR or um, even being able to do things like super resolution, where you bring clarity to a, a picture that doesn't have that isn't high resolution to start with. All of those all of those features are now. Um, they started off as computer vision-based and are now becoming uh, driven by deep neural networks on the device to solve for the same problem to achieve better accuracy and, in many cases, um, uh, give the developer a more generalized approach to how they you know, uh, instantiate those features. Those are those are probably the most common today.
0: Now, it doesn't surprise me that the camera pipeline – Uh, is all being processed uh, on device. But I'm a bit surprised to hear that things like object recognition, face recognition, voice recognition are... Being done on device. The thing that I'm thinking of most is like, okay, Google or the facial recognition or like the people recognition and like Google photos. And I just assume that that's, you know, the app and it's talking back to Google's cloud and all of the machine learning AI is happening between those two pieces of software. But it sounds like, uh, more of it's happening on the device than I might think.
1: Uh, I think that's right. Um, if you look at if you look at anything that deals with biometric data, whether it's your face or your voice, that's very specific to you, and that data needs to be kept secure and private. And um, there is today, given the state of um, kind of compute on device, as well as the uh, the ability of um, um, you know CNNs and and RNNs to be able to run locally in a pretty efficient way. There's really no reason why you as an individual should have to um, rely on a cloud and, and present your personal data to that to the data center of the cloud in order to achieve some level of uh, uh, utility or some utility on on the phone. So specifically with facial recognition, um, and I guess I should take a step back and say that there are... Uh, security and privacy have been probably one of the primary reasons why we focus so much on, on device as opposed to relying solely on the cloud for some of these functions. That and performance, so low latency, because everybody wants things immediate. Um, but there is, again, no no reason why you should have to share your voice print or your voice data or your facial uh, information or any other biometric data, for that matter, with a third party uh, to, let's say, unlock a phone and and do what you need to do on that device. Um, so what you see today, in, if you're looking at OK Google or, I know, if you're on, a, on uh, an iOS device um there's a balance between what's happening on the phone and what's happening in the cloud. Um, some cases, as a consumer, you're not going to know, and I don't think that, and the intention is that you shouldn't know. What you should get is the best user experience. What we try to do is focus on ensuring that whatever workload does run on the device uh, is uh, executed in a power-efficient and performant manner. But, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a variance. Some things do happen on the device, and some things are happening in the cloud.
0: And how about from a... Uh application developer perspective if i'm developing an app and maybe you know everything's probably different if i'm google but if i'm you know just a, a, a an app developer android app developer or ios app developer and i want to use ai either via via kind of your you know mobile tensorflow or something like that or your uh the ios uh extensions do I have to think a lot about, you know, on-device AI and how to take full advantage of the hardware? Or are we at the point where that's all transparent to me and, you know, whatever framework I'm using figures out the best way to do things?
1: Um, I think we're still at a point where there's a there's experimentation. There There's very little standardization across the industry, whether it's from benchmarking or uh, common APIs to access the underlying compute on um, different devices, irrespective of the chip that is driving that device. Um, in our portfolio, we have, right now, we have a handful of tools that are all part of what we call the, the Qualcomm uh, AI engine. And this AI engine is um, the sum of a number of parts. It's the primary compute engines that we have on our chip, so the CPU, the GPU, uh, our hexagon vector processor. And something that we just recently introduced with Snapdragon 855, we call a, a tensor accelerator, which is a dedicated uh, AI processor embedded in the the Snapdragon 855 chip. We can talk about that at another time or, or later. Um, but that's, those are the hardware elements. That's where the job gets done. And each of those cores has a different power and performance profile to accommodate what would be, uh, let's say, uh, KPIs that the developer has set out for a specific user experience. Let's say we're going to say facial recognition or detecting a keyword or somebody's voice. Um, there, there are, there each of those, each of those features has a, a, a different tolerance for latency and a different tolerance for, uh, for power. So by providing multiple compute engines from a hardware standpoint, uh, it gives the developer choice on the software side. Um, Specifically in our portfolio, we have SDKs like the neural processing engine, which I think you mentioned at the, at the beginning, which is a very easy to use tool for a developer who has trained a neural network offline and wants to run it on a Snapdragon device. Um, when they bring that when they bring that model to the device using the the neural processing SDK, all they have to do is make a simple API call to uh, run on any of the compute elements, whether it's the CPU, GPU, or the vector processor or tensor accelerator, and then and then away they go. It's very straightforward. You don't have to get down to the lower level close to the metal and. And, um, uh, and roll up your sleeves, but we do have tools for those that want to get their hands dirty. We have libraries like um, Hexagon NN, which is a, a neural network library for Hexagon. If you want to uh, just write directly to the Hexagon processor and not worry about the other cores, uh, we have math libraries for CPU. And then if you're a uh, if you're familiar with OpenCL, uh, the Adreno GPU. Uh, Our Arduino GPU supports OpenCL, so you can program directly to the GPU. So there's a variety of different ways with our own technology uh, that you can access the compute on on Snapdragon. And all of that is part of what we call the the AI engine. There's also, um, in mobile specifically, and I'd say with Android – uh, Google released um, uh, the Android NN API or neural networking API back in Android O, which we supported from the very beginning on Snapdragon. Um, over time we expect that that API will um, uh, that, that will become the primary, the dominant way that in Android if a developer wants to run a build an application that's running and running um, uh, DNNs online, uh, they'll use Android NN or NNAPI as the, the primary interface. That, that would be, I guess, the first movement toward um, standardization when it comes to uh, how you would access different chips uh, in the Android environment. Uh, but I, I'd say, by and large, there's still quite a bit of uh, activity. I use the term Wild West a lot because it really is the Wild West, um, it and it's and it's exciting. I mean there's so much activity the 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 amount of innovation, the collaboration between organizations that have found themselves to be the most contentious competitors or are, are now collaborating to advance overall machine learning and artificial intelligence at a, at a pace that uh, I think most of us we look at it, there's no hyperbolic term that could be used that doesn't apply. It actually does apply. It's moving so fast.
0: You know, again, kind of putting putting the developer hat on, it sounds like uh, particularly in the Android world, which kind of historically – suffers with uh, a very high degree of fragmentation, it sounds like it may still be a a frustrating experience to figure out which of these, you know, tools and APIs and things like that I need to use to take advantage of the underlying, you know, all of the potential underlying hardware possibilities.
1: Yeah, I guess it, it depends too on the device class. So in mobile, it's probably a little bit more complicated because there are you know, multitude of SOCs that are out there that are driving different mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where Android NN as an API or as an interface may actually solve a lot of that problem. Because if you have a common way to interface with the underlying hardware, and each of the SOC manufacturers or chip manufacturers, like Qualcomm, are doing our job under the hood, um, which we have, at least on our side, developing drivers for each of our compute cores that are optimized specifically for, let's say, NN API then that frustration from a developer standpoint is minimized. In fact, it's reduced considerably. Um, when you deal with proprietary SDKs, they still have an impact and still have a benefit in in a broad mobile environment, but they then become a little bit more... Um, uh, I guess the priority around those become uh, increases when you get into dedicated devices like connected cameras or speakers where you know that the SOC that's powering that is the is the same one across the board. And as a developer, you have um, less variability. So you can be more confident. Um, mm. But I do think that um, – I do think that there's – for at least for the next few years, there's going to continue to be a lot of experimentation. There will be a balance between standardization and maybe a slight degradation in performance versus um, proprietary software execution and and the ultimate performance. That balance will always be there. But the good thing is is that there will be choice. Um, if I go back when we started this conversation in music, and I've tried to I've tried to develop or uh, an, an analogy uh, or a comparison when I was doing early on in my college days when I was doing digital music production. Um, everything was very manual. It was all purpose built. You didn't have any way to. Uh, generalize, cut and paste, and sample. And sampling was actually done with analog devices like cassette tapes and 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 uh, and vinyl records. Mm-hmm. Over, t- over time, music production software became more uh, advanced and abstracted a lot of that, you know, heavy lifting and and purpose-built uh, programming that you had to do as a, let's say, a producer. And then cut and paste became kind of the way that you went. So if you want to replicate a specific uh, phrase, you could do that, just cut and paste, cut and paste. And now it's so easy to make music uh, as a novice. All the tools are there at your disposal. It's, it's very, uh, um, uh, what's the, it's democratized. That's probably the best way to put it. The pace that we see in, um, let's say, machine learning and AI tools and frameworks like TensorFlow and PyTorch And the efforts like uh, the Open Neural Network Exchange is an example, which is another way to give a developer the latitude to use whatever framework they wish to express their model in uh, and not have to worry about what the underlying hardware supports. Like Onyx as an interchange format is one that, again, makes that job a lot easier. With all these different tools and advancements. I think you're going to see uh, a democratization. In fact, there, there's already a democratization of AI happening outside of just the technology development, like in education. Um, you know, a- Andrew Ng's courses on Coursera. Um, there are government entities around the globe that are pushing AI, machine learning education in high school and in college. It's 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 remarkable. So. I think the short term there's certainly pain and um you know a lot of experimentation mm-hmm. um but we're I think you're already seeing a number of examples where things are consolidating and I'll use that term the democratization is already underway.
0: You made an interesting point earlier in uh you know when I in in kind of progressing through this conversation I've been thinking mostly mobile devices, i.e. handsets, smartphones, um, but you reference kind of device classes and quote-unquote IoT devices, whether they're smart speakers or, you know, by extension, kind of industrial IoT devices. Can you give us a sense of the relative size of each of those markets from, I don't know what makes sense, like number of devices, or do you have a sense of that?
1: Um, I don't have, I don't have, uh, you can slice and dice that, uh, in a number of ways. Um, I, I think the one, I think the, the one data point that keeps getting thrown around when it comes to specific devices outside of mobile, um, I think the, the smart speaker market, and I, I'm, unfortunately, you have to forgive me. I don't have the number off the top of my head and I don't want to give you an incorrect number, but the smart, the smart speaker market driven, um, uh, it, Primarily by the the Echo and the Alexa platform, I think is probably one of the standouts. Security cameras are 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 um, very prevalent, especially from a kind of a, an enterprise standpoint. But the smart speaker is a consumer device is probably the standout um, category leader, if you will, in IoT, uh, even any other embedded device outside of mobile. Um, that that particular device and I have to speak from my own personal, I'll speak from my own personal view first and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it from a from an industry standpoint. I'm one of these individuals that despite my comfort with technology and, and audio, which is really at the core of what I've been focused on most of my career and in my personal life, talking to an inanimate object has been uncomfortable, I, whether it's a, a speaker or a mobile phone or what have you. I see people do it and I, it it had been awkward for me for the longest time, but what that, you know, echo class device was able to do is kind of break down that wall between, uh, a consumer and the device and create the beginning of what is a relationship. And I think the relationship that we will have with the devices around us will be based in large part on the, on voice and how, um, you know, not just about command and control where you, you know, ask, uh, ask Alexa or, or, Cortana or Siri or what have you, uh, for a to to provide something, so make a request. Um, over time, that's going to become um, more real, more lifelike. Today, it's very, uh, it's still today, it's still a little bit. Um, I don't say awkward, but it's not. It's like like it's not like you're talking to a human being. You know you're talking to a device, whether that device or whether the the intelligence is in the cloud or on the device. You know that it's not. Um, it's not a it's not a companion. It's not somebody you have a relationship with. But the the movements toward making a lot of that work happen on the device, a lot of the the, the algorithm processing on the device is going to allow for that conversation to become really more of a conversation and the, the, the gaps between uh, uh, the device providing a response or you talking to the device, those gaps will be reduced so lower latency, but then also being able to detect more about what you as an individual or how you feel, like what is it in your voice that uh, the device itself or the algorithm can detect? So sentiment, like are you happy? Are you sad, angry? And then being able to provide even richer, a richer response and maybe even proactively um, engage. So, that category, pro- and um, without providing a without providing a number, which again I don't want to I don't want to call attention to a number that may be incorrect because uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think that device category specifically, uh, and the, um, the the size of it, which is I think the largest of all IoT devices. That's going to be one of the most interesting ones to watch for for all the reasons that I just mentioned. I think that that interaction, that real relationship, the, com- the companionship that you're going to have with a device over time is going to be largely driven by voice. That's why that category is so hot.
0: That's uh, interesting. I hadn't really thought about the lack of the ability to do kind of robust on-device audio processing, AI audio processing as a key limitation of the user experience. But now that you say it, I totally get it. Like you say something to one of these devices, it kind of, you're, you're waiting for a long time. And a lot of that is just kind of the latency of talking to a cloud and, uh, having that then have to come back.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know how many times your, your, your internet's going down at your house, but if you have one of these devices, the minute you ask for something, you get a response. Is you know, sorry, I can't help you right now. It's like, yeah. well, you should be able to help me. You should at least engage with me in such a way that um, it minimizes that frustration. So, there's there's enough processing capability. Uh, the algorithms are becoming far more um, efficient to run on device. You can handle more keywords. You know, natural language processing and overall voice UI as a category. There's so much movement there. There's no reason why the device could not provide more utility and that that um, that level of personal interaction um, moving forward and it'll just get it'll just get better over time
0: Yeah yeah I imagine that's coming very soon. there's no reason why the device shouldn't at least be able to turn off the lights or something like that when it's disconnected. So maybe taking a, a a bit of a step back, uh one of the the first things I mentioned was the Snapdragon 855 platform launch you did back in December. Um and I I kind of want to use that as a as an entree to talking about, you know, what these platforms mean uh and specifically uh when we You mentioned some of the components of a platform like this: CPU, GPU, Hexagon, AI Accelerator. Uh, I want to get a mental model for, you know, these sound like in some ways, like overlapping components um, in terms of functionality, or at least, you know, they could be used uh, in overlapping ways, like. What are the different pieces and how sh- how do developers or how should developers or users think about uh, using them and, you know, what directions are each of them going?
1: So if we if we use the Snapdragon 855 introduction as the the springboard for this for this one, Snapdragon 855 is what we consider to have our fourth generation AI engine. I mentioned the AI engine as being the kind of the sum of the parts that make on device Uh, machine learning acceleration possible. And in Snapdragon 855, we've done a number of things to all the compute elements. We've added um, uh, more arithmetic logic units to our CPUs, about 50% more. Uh, On the CPU side, we've incorporated um, dot product instructions that increase AI performance specifically at uh, 8-bit fixed by four times or four X. And then on the hexagon side, um, if you followed our if you followed our path over these past fa- fa- past four generations, Hexagon has had a vector processor, uh, or we at least we've had the hector- Hexagon vector processor in our chips going all the way back from Snapdragon 820 to 835, 845, and now 855, and that's been a uh, uh, one of the primary engines for doing on-device AI. So that we actually doubled the size, uh, or doubled the the number of uh, hexagon vector extensions we call them uh, between 845 and 855 um, and then we added uh, for the first time a dedicated AI accelerator we call it a, a tensor accelerator it's part of the hexagon family and its sole purpose uh, is to process um, you know DNNs on device Hexagon uh, the hexagon vector extensions had prior had been the the prior, uh, in prior generations, had been a primary engine for that, but vector extensions also have uh, utility in doing vision processing and other compute functions. So it wasn't dedicated; um, uh, it wasn't dedicated solely to AI. But even with the addition of this uh, tensor accelerator, um, that does not mean that the rest of the the family of compute engines uh, doesn't participate. To your point, to your question, you know, are there specific reasons why you would want to use one? engine versus another or one compute element versus another to run an AI algorithm? And the answer goes back to something I think I mentioned earlier, and it has to do with you know, the power and performance and what you what you want to get out of that particular user experience um, or how you want that user experience to perform. Also, what else is happening in the system? So if you're, uh, you know, if, if the if the phone is d- doing other tasks, or as part of that user experience, uh, you're doing uh, graphics processing, or you need the display uh, to to uh, be highly performant, um, you may want to choose a different place to run an AI algorithm if the GPU has a higher workload. Or uh, the same is true for the vector extensions. You have. Uh, you you may want to have a little bit more flexibility in where you run that AI algorithm. Um, And then from a pure AI standpoint, um, what we've done to combine, or in the system, we're combining uh, hexagon vector extensions and our new tensor accelerator. Uh, As a developer, you can utilize both of those, which gives you kind of a balance between what would be programmable, Um, AI processing in the form of the vector extensions, and then dedicated acceleration with the tensor accelerator. You can combine those two to give. I guess I'll say I don't like to use the term ultimate, but the best performance possible by by combining those two compute elements. But again, taking one step back, we don't look at AI as a one size fits all problem. Um, or at least it's not one size fits all. So a one compute Architecture is not going to solve all the problems that you see uh, or satisfy all the use cases that you see on device. It's just we're, we're not at a stage, and I don't know if we'll ever get to that stage, to be quite honest. Um, but at least with A55, we provided you know, a balance between what is our standard portfolio of compute with uh, different programming capabilities and then this new dedicated accelerator. Again, each with a different power and performance profile to solve for the various. Uh, use cases and tolerances that the developer has for the uh, when the, when they're developing those features um, in addition and i guess I'll, I'll 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 build on top of that there's a big movement in the industry across the board whether it's in uh, whether it's in the data center or it's on device but uh, dedicated acceleration, dedicated AI processors. There's various terms that are used. There's NPU for neural processing, or there's VPU or IPU. Um, all of these, uh, th- there's a there's a very big movement in that respect across the board in mobile, in IoT, in automotive, and there is a there is a demand for that and a need for that today, but. That doesn't mean that that's where everything is going to go. That doesn't mean that a dedicated processor, dedicated processor, is the answer uh, to all the problems that you're going to see, or satisfying all the use cases that you're going to see in various device classes. You do need a wide portfolio of compute to accommodate the level of variability that is certainly there today, and it's going to be there till the, it'll be there for the foreseeable future.
0: And when you speak about these dedicated processors does the tensor accelerator for example fit into that or are you specifically thinking about kind of an off-board off soc processor
1: no i think the tensor accelerator is an example of that so um there there's there's there if you look at dedicated acceleration there actually are two different vectors one is embedded which would be in the soc or in the chip so uh, in mobile um uh, Qualcomm and and others are ha, are or have introduced um, dedicated acceleration uh, some of those some of those are uh, kind of reworked digital signal processors in our case we have a, a ground up architecture or from the ground up um, uh, custom-built um, uh, IP. It's specifically designed for DNN processing. Tensor
0: uh, accelerated, but Hexagon is kind of the reworked DSP.
1: Yeah. So Hexagon. Is that right? If you look at Hex- yeah, Hexagon is a. There's actually uh, a number of DSPs in the Hexagon portfolio. There's a modem DSP. There's a compute DSP. So yes. In the past, Hexagon has been associated with digital signal processing, and even the vector extensions are part of our compute DSP. But the tensor accelerator is a totally, a totally unique architecture. Um, so, in the in the market today, there are embedded accelerators in in SoCs, in ours and others, and then there are also folks that are developing kind of off chip. Um, dedicated AI chips that just do uh, that just do AI processing. They can augment what is on the primary application processor or they can be used independently. Um, But there's again, going back to the, there is such a big movement um, and innovation is happening so fast that um, I guess the more, the bigger the sandbox that you provide a developer, the more they'll, they'll use it. Um, In the case of mobile, there's a lot of, there's, there's a balance between, what you provide in terms of overall compute, the variety of compute, and the cost associated with it. You have less latitude when it comes to kind of a, a primary SoC like Snapdragon to to provide a, a massive um, AI accelerator. And there's really not any need to in mobile. But there might be other instances where you do need a pure dedicated AI processing and, and quite a bit of it outside uh, of mobile.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, on the software side of things, you know, thinking about software platforms, um, I would call that kind of idea like a very unopinionated platform versus you know platforms that have very you know this is the way to do it, um, very very strong opinions. Do you think does that analogy apply here? And. There are some implications of that on the the software side. You know, oftentimes developers want more opinionated platforms uh, because they, you know, there are less choices that they have to make. Does that analogy apply, and what are the implications of it here?
1: Um. Yeah, I think it, if you know, going back in our conversation, talking about um, you know, developer pain points and what um, what what makes the developer's life easier or difficult. Um, I we're not seeing a consistency across the board because there's still a, there's still a ramping up of expertise. I mean, when when we started this and I'll just speak from where I sit from four years ago when I began this process uh, and this project in Qualcomm um, developer savvy was uh, well, there wasn't much. And, you know, a lot of abstraction and providing uh, what would be turnkey solutions, like an object classifier, or image classifier, or scene classifier, was what we started off with because nobody really understood how to, to how to do the job. They could train a model, but they didn't know really how to run it on on target. Um, we fast forward. We've gone so far ahead or moved so far ahead just in four years that now developers are very savvy. The tools are there. There's a variety of them. Um, the education is there. And um, I think the desire across the desire from many of the developers that we deal with today and customers that we have today, uh, they want more flexibility. They want more of an ability to experiment. They don't want to be kind of stuck in a box and, you know, focus on a very specific, uh, programming, uh, method or, or way to access a particular, um, compute engine. They want a little, they want more variability. They want more flexibility. So I think the openness is becoming kind of more prevalent. That's not to say that proprietary tools and, being very fixed in the approach to, let's say, you know, running a, a natural language processing algorithm or something on a purpose-built device isn't uh, isn't helpful. But we're actually seeing more developers looking for choice and flexibility and modularity. They want to get closer to the metal when they when it comes to programming, and they'd like to be able to do it in multiple ways. So um, that's a trend, but I wouldn't say that that's a dominant trend. I think that's there's still there's, there's nothing that settles out to say that a proprietary approach and a fixed approach is the best, maybe over time that will be, depending on the use case or the device class, but I, I still think it's it's highly variable at this point.
0: We're, we're speaking very early in January. It'll be a couple of weeks before folks hear this, but uh, we're at the very beginning of uh, 2019. What do you see happening in the space in 2019 and beyond?
1: So um, there are a couple of areas that uh, I, I think we're looking at, and we see uh, kind of emerging over time. One is uh, the area of on-device learning. So today, today the lion's share of all the the workloads that are that we see on in mobile and on other devices, um, it's all inference. So it's the application or the utilization of a trained model running on target to deliver that use case or solve that problem. Uh, there's very little learning happening, but we see a kind of a movement toward um, you know, taking a trained model, having it run on target, but also being able to take in data from the various sensors on device and augment that model to become um, more aware more contextually aware of its environment. Um, to prov- to provide you know more personalization for consumers variety of different techniques that are being explored in the industry there's reinforcement learning um, and others but I think that's going to be a trend that we see in in 2019 um, hardware acceleration or dedicated hardware uh, for AI processing will continue to be a big movement um, um, both in the embedded side as well as uh, as well as um, you know, off-chip standalone, uh, standalone AI processors. Um, benchmarking is probably one of the areas that I've mentioned wild west a minute ago, but I think that certainly applies here. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, confusion in the marketplace today when it comes to what is, first off, what is AI, and then secondarily, you know, how do you measure its effectiveness? How do you measure the you know performance of running a particular convolutional neural network for a particular use case uh, or a specific network type or class like a ResNet or VGG or what have you, how do you actually measure that in a real-world setting and then compare hardware platforms to each other? And right now, there's a variety of uh, entities that have sprung up to try to tackle that problem, but there's no consistency with methodology or formula or... You know the 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 underlying uh, n- network classes that are used to actually do the measurement, and then ultimately what the benefit is. What is the final uh, outcome of this, and why does it matter? Um, benchmarks and graphics and CPU and in other cases are all very well settled. And there's still you know there's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on in those categories. Uh, but specifically in AI, that's an area that is um, uh, that that's it's it is a uh, it is quite fluid and it changes, I think, day to day. So we see some of that settling out this year. Um, it would be good because it'll help with um, OEMs making choices about who to pick uh, as their 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 SOC vendor, and it'll help consumers understand a little bit better what is the benefit of what's happening on the device. Why does this matter? Why is this making my life more interesting and and uh, uh, and compelling and and enjoyable? And then the last one I think is this uh, is the movement um, that we're pushing very hard, and something that we've been leading the charge on for a few years is five G. So five G connectivity isn't just going to make that connection between the data center and the and the the device uh, more efficient and you know lower latency. But devices will be able to share information with each other in ways that they haven't previously. And the combination of 5G and AI, albeit 5G, will be kind of at the starting point in 2019. You'll probably see developers uh, trying to take advantage of that connectivity platform in a way um, that, you know, uh, they haven't in the past, and being able to make devices connect to each other in a more intelligent way, we see a big future with a combination of 5G and AI. In fact, that's where we're spending most of our time and effort these days at Qualcomm.
0: One of the things you mentioned kind of piqued my interest uh, in the context of on-device learning is uh, reinforcement learning. I typically think of that as like running lots of simulations, taking a long time, which doesn't seem like something that I'd necessarily want to do on a device it, it, are, are there are you aware of specific things that are happening to address that in the context of on device learning
1: I don't have any examples to share with you now and you're right that uh, a lot of what's happening today and we, we look at different processes that we're trying to explore like reinforcement you know reinforcement learning usage uh, uh, off target or, or uh, not on device but um uh, improving processes that would end up running on the device. I don't have any examples, I, and I just pulled that out as one potential, um, but nothing, nothing, nothing specifically that I could point to. Um, but it isn't. But on-device learning specifically, um, the de- the desire, the demand from uh, developers and even our OEM partners to be able to take more, to take better advantage of the incoming data from the various sensors on the device, you know, microphone and camera and accelerometer, uh, to be able to provide a more personalized experience in general, there's a, there's high demand there. And I think you're going to see, uh, you'll see more effort, maybe some experimentation, but there'll be more emphasis placed on trying to make the device itself, not just a, uh, not just a, um, uh, kind of fixed with a specific intelligence level, but one that would be heightened by way of additional context that it's able to grok from the world around it.
0: Well, Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. I really learned a lot and I enjoyed the conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. I appreciate it. And thanks for letting me share your uh, your birthday with you.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Take care. You too.